Again, we're at Revelation chapter 10. Let's jump right in it and take a look at verse 1. And I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with a cloud. And a rainbow was on his head, his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. Revelation chapter 9 left off with the sounding of the sixth of seven trumpets, which usher in the end of all things. We were waiting for the seventh trumpet to come along, but it hadn't come yet. Now, instead of the seventh trumpet, we have another interlude. The book of Revelation has done it to us again. We had six seals and then a big pause, and it took a while for the seventh seal to come along. Then the seventh seal kicked in seven trumpets, and we had six trumpets, and we're all ready for the seventh one, and then there's a pause. Now, these interludes serve a dramatic purpose, but they also show God's mercy, His love in allowing more opportunity for repentance. It's as if God brings things to the brink and then pulls it back a little bit to grant mankind more time to repent. Think about how merciful God has been to you and I in giving us time to repent. You know, I mean, he he didn't have to, did he? You could have ended up dead at the end of that drug binge or that time when you were a Uh, drunk and got behind the wheel of the car or uh, was involved in this or that or the other thing. So many things could have happened to you. But God was merciful, wasn't he? And then we see the same pattern in the book of Revelation. God giving mercy and God giving man time to repent. So in this interlude, if you will, between the sixth and the seventh trumpets, John sees still another mighty angel coming down from heaven. Now, there's this inescapable tendency from Bible commentators to want to identify these angels. Well, well, who are they? Is it Gabriel? Is it Michael? Is it an unnamed angel? Is it an unnamed angel that we previously saw in the book of Revelation? Many, many commentators believe that this particular angel is Jesus himself. Now, certainly some of the imagery applies to him. If you look at verse 1, it says he was clothed with a cloud. And often that's an emblem of deity, clothed with the cloud of glory, the Shekinah cloud. And it also says that a rainbow was on his head and his face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. Well, these are suggestive images which would point us back to some of the imagery surrounding Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. But it is important to say that angels are never clearly identified with Jesus in Revelation or in the New Testament. Though he is clearly identified with the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. It's a hard call to say if this mighty angel is Jesus. Or some people have suggested it might be Michael. Because there's also similarities between this mighty angel and to Michael, as Michael is described in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, and chapter 12, verses 6 and 7. I think it's interesting that it says that a rainbow was on his head. Not only is the rainbow a reminder of God's promise to man, but what else do you have in this image here in verse 1? You have his face like the sun, and he's clothed with the cloud. Well, it's not uncommon when you put sun and clouds together that you get a rainbow out of it. Whoever the exact identity is of this angel, this angel has come from the very presence of God, and he shows a lot of might and a lot of authority. Now look at what this angel does, beginning at verse 2. And he had a little book open in his right hand, open in his hand. And he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. If you notice here, this mighty angel has a little book open in his hand. Now, what's interesting is we saw previously a scroll or a book in somebody's hand in the book of Revelation, didn't we? That was in Revelation chapter 5, where God Almighty, enthroned in heaven, held a a scroll in his hand, and no one was worthy to take the scroll or open the scroll or to read the scroll except the Lamb of God himself, Jesus himself. And some people have wondered, is this little book the same as the scroll mentioned previously in the book of Revelation? Well, John does use different words to describe the scroll of Revelation 5.1 and this little book here. I mean, he could have used the exact same words if he wanted to, but he didn't. 
He used different words. This one is definitely in the original ancient Greek language. It's called a little book. It's probably best to see them as different, yet closely related. A lot of people, with some justification, see this little book as maybe an abridged version of that great scroll. I mean, it's sort of a portion of it or, or an aspect of it. And that scroll we kind of described as being the consummation of all things, the, the, the disposition of the affairs of the universe, God's last will and testament, so to speak, on how the affairs of the universe will be consummated. And this little book may be a portion of it. In any regard... We see the authority of this angel. If you look at verses 2 and 3, it says he sets his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. First of all, it's remarkable that he can set his foot on the sea. But secondly, I want you to see that the stance projects his authority over both land and sea. And this angel either has this authority in an indirect sense as being a messenger of God, right? He has his authority because he's sent by God, or maybe he has it in a direct sense if this mighty angel is indeed Jesus himself. But, but his stance indicates a complete authority over the earthly situation. And when he cries out, look what happens, verse 3. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. It's interesting, repeatedly in the Bible, oftentimes there's a very vivid image in Psalm 29 of seven times repeating the voice, repeating the phrase, I should say, the voice of the Lord. And it's like a thunder that goes back and back and back again. That's in Psalm 29. But here in this idea of the fullness, the perfection of it, seven thunders uttered their voices. And what did they say? Well, look at verse 4. Now, when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. Now, doesn't that just drive you crazy? John heard those seven thunders say something. He heard him say, you know, it probably said something like, by Microsoft in the early 80s. But he didn't write it. Don't write that, God said. Who knows what the thunder said? You know, the whole idea here is that here it's, it's something proclaimed, and John's ready to write it, John's ready to record it, but God says don't. Seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. You can imagine how it sets the Bible commentators running wild. Everybody wants to say what they think the seven thunders said. Now, what I think is really interesting about this is that if John isn't allowed to tell us what they said, why should he even record the incident? I mean, you know how it is in your own personal life. Somebody comes up to them, they, they, they're all excited about saying, oh, I, I have to say this, and then they go, what? No, I won't tell you. Well, then you have to know, don't you? I mean, if they would have never said anything, it's okay, then you don't have to know. Your, your ignorance is bliss. But John comes to her and says, oh, I was all excited to write down what I heard, but, oh, I'm sorry, I can't tell you. Why? Why? I think one of the results of this is to let us know that there are secrets in the prophetic scenario and that there are mysteries that keep our exposition and our prediction humble. Listen, we know many of the highlights prophetically of how things are going to work out in the future. But we don't know it all, folks. As a matter of fact, when it plays out, when it actually happens on the human arena, it may be very different from how we have envisioned it. Because there may be many significant aspects to the whole way that the prophetic scenario works out which are not mentioned specifically in prophecy. One of my favorite ways to illustrate this is to just think of the, of the whole uh, Christmas story, the, the whole nativity scene with Jesus. When you picture in your mind the nativity scene... Think about what was prophesied and what was not. Well, you think, okay, well, there's Jesus born in a stable. You see the animals around. You see the wise men coming. You see the shepherds adoring him. You have this whole scene in your mind. Now, how much of that specific scene was prophesied? Not very much. It was prophesied that he'd be born in Bethlehem, but not in a stable. It was prophesied that he would receive glory and honor from the Gentiles, but not specifically from the wise men. And so, you see, many of the aspects that we really think about when it comes to the, the whole Christmas of the nativity scene, they were not specifically uh, prophesied. 
And so we have markers along the way when it comes to prophecy, but who knows how God's going to fill in the whole picture. And I think as much as anything, these seven thunders that John heard what they said and is not allowed to tell us, it should keep us humble. God has revealed much, but there are secrets which God has not seen fit to reveal to man at this time. Going on here, verse 5. And the angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, lifted up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets." See the picture here now, this mighty angel, he raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. By the way, if you're keeping a scorecard as to whether or not this mighty angel is Jesus or not, you know, we've seen some checks in the mark. Well, that sounds like it might be Jesus. Here's a check in the box that says it might not be like Jesus. You don't picture Jesus taking an oath by God the Father in heaven. Jesus stands on his own authority. He doesn't need to swear by God the Father in heaven. He can swear by himself, as it were. But this mighty angel gives a solemn oath, declaring that the end is irrevocably set in motion, that there should be delay no longer, that there's absolutely no turning back. And no turning back from what? Notice it, verse 7, that the mystery of God would be finished. Now, what mystery? When it says that the mystery of God would be finished, what does it mean? Well, one of the important aspects of this mystery, if you notice here in verse 7, is that it has been declared to his servants, the prophets. Let's understand something about this biblical idea of what a mystery is. I want you to think biblical vocabulary, not mystery novel vocabulary. In biblical vocabulary, a mystery is is not something that nobody knows. I mean, that's what we think of a mystery, right? Mystery is, well, nobody knows it. It's a mystery. That is not a mystery in the biblical vocabulary. In the biblical vocabulary, a mystery is something that no one could know unless it was revealed to him. So, in other words, everybody could know a certain truth But if it could only be known because it was revealed to them, well, then it's a mystery. Let me, uh, I'll just give you an example of this, and it's a very poor example, but I think you just get the the picture of it. Uh, You know, we could say tonight, well, um, what was the hospital that I was born in? And you might say, well, I don't know, that's a mystery to me. But I could say, well, I'll tell you what it is. And I could tell you the name of the hospital. It was Kaiser Hospital in Fontana, California, the place where I was born. And you say, well, now we know it. But in the biblical thinking, it's still a mystery. Because you wouldn't have known it unless I revealed it to you. You couldn't have known it by intuition. And you couldn't have known it by investigation. Now, although this is where my example breaks down. Because strictly what I just, a little hypothetical example, you could, you could have gone to the the Hall of Records and looked at my birth certificate, and with your own investigation, you could have found out where I was born, you could have asked my mother, you know, you could have found it out. But in the biblical sense, you can't find it out unless God reveals it to you, that's what a mystery is. So therefore, something can be known and still a mystery in the biblical sense. So what is this mystery of God that he speaks about in verse 7? Can I just say it's hard to know? Because this phrase or its equivalent is used for many different aspects of God's plan. Romans 11 verse 25 says that the ultimate conversion of the Jewish people is called a mystery. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 3 through 11 says that God's purpose for the church is a mystery. Romans chapter 11 verse 25 says that the bringing in of the fullness of the Gentiles is a mystery. Colossians chapter 1, verses 27 through chapter 2, verse 3, says that the living presence of Jesus in the believer is a mystery of God. And the gospel itself is called the mystery of Christ in Colossians 4, 3. 
What I want you to see is this idea of the mystery of God, the mystery of Christ. It's used in many different ways, in many different contexts. I think in this context, the mystery of God probably refers to the resolution, the unfolding of all things. It's the finishing of his plan of the ages. He's revealed aspects of it to his prophets in the Old Testament, but no one would know it unless God had revealed it. So now look at what he is spoken of regarding this book, presumably uh, containing this uh, mystery of God that would be finished. Verse 8. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. And I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. He said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. That's a pretty vivid picture, isn't it? John comes up and he goes to the angel and he says, well, take and eat it. That's really feeding on the word of God, wouldn't you say? And he does it. He takes it and he eats it and I don't know, he bites right into it and apparently God has constructed that book in the vision and the experience that John had that when he bites into it, it's initially very sweet. Then it becomes bitter. And if you take a look at it, verse 10, it says, And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. And it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Very interestingly, this isn't the only place in the Bible where somebody is told to eat a scroll. Ezekiel was told to eat a scroll. Jeremiah was told to eat a scroll. Eat some of that. And it's a very strong, I mean, it's a very vivid picture, isn't it? You've got to take the word into yourself. You gotta, can you just imagine somebody tearing a piece off, chewing it up, swallowing it down? That's certainly a way to do your daily devotions there, isn't it, huh? He said, I fed on a chapter of Revelation this morning. And people wouldn't know how literally you're speaking. Now, we wouldn't say that this is the entire Bible that John is reading. It's, it's some aspect of God's plan for the future because it was as sweet as honey in his mouth. It's like when he received this word, when he took it into himself, oh, how sweet it is, how beautiful, how glorious. But then it became bitter in John's stomach. When God's purpose, when his plan for the resolution of all things, when it's revealed, it's bittersweet. It discloses great mercy and glory, but it also discloses great judgment. So he, you look at it, if you will, it's, it's indigestible. He, he can't take it, it's bitter in his stomach. I think anybody who seeks to communicate God's word knows at least a little something of this dynamic of how sweet the word of God can be and how bitter it can be. I think if you're going to be a faithful communicator of God's word, you've got to let it be sweet where it's sweet and bitter where it's bitter. A lot of people go around and they're trying to you know, sprinkle honey and sugar on the bitter parts and make them not be so bitter. No, I mean where it speaks of judgment, where it speaks of repentance, where it speaks of the, the absolute need for us to forsake our sin and get right with God, you better let it flow. Then again, God forbid if you try to pour a little vinegar on the sweet parts. Let the sweet be sweet and the bitter be bitter. John is told here that he's going to prophesy, verse 11, about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Whatever the content of the scroll, it's connected to John's command to prophesy to all men. This is not just a prophecy directed to the church. His prophecy speaks of the fate of the entire world, not just one nation, not just one empire, not just one emperor. No, it's the entire world. Now we move into chapter 11. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Now, we keep touching back on these images from the Old Testament. This is one of the fascinating things about the book of Revelation. It is more than anything the most Old Testament-like book in the New Testament. Almost everything that happens, almost everything that's said in the book of Revelation will find some kind of precedent, some kind of example in the Old Testament. Does John eat a scroll? You can bet somebody did it before him in the Old Testament. The prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Ezekiel. 
Does John measure the temple? You can bet that one of the prophets did it before him. And it's true. In Ezekiel chapters 40 through 43, there's an extended passage where a temple, the temple that will be in the millennium, is, men- is measured, I should say. And this temple, though, seems to be before that temple. The temple in Ezekiel, when it was measured, it was measured extensively, including the outer courts. But as we're going to see in verse 2, this temple is measured, and John is specifically told not to measure the outer courts. Well, he's told to rise and measure the temple of God. Measuring in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, has in its mind the idea of ownership. It has an idea, the idea of being a proprietor or a protector over something. Habakkuk prophesied and said that the Lord stood and measured the earth. And the idea is that the Lord owns the earth and he can do with it whatever he pleases. Now, when the temple here is measured, it shows that God knows its every dimension and that he is in charge. Let's not forget this. This is one of the great themes of the book of Revelation, that God is in charge. Might I say again that that so many times in the New Testament, this word for God is used, calling him the Almighty. The ancient Greek word is pantocrator. And and it literally means the one who has his hand on everything. And I believe out of 11 times that it's used in the New Testament, 10 of the 11 are found in the book of Revelation. This temple that, that John is called to measure, it's going to be the scene of great horror and great glory, but God is in charge of it all. So what is this temple? Again, notice verse 1. It says, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Now, Revelation chapter 11 is very important. It's, it's one of those watershed chapters in the understanding of the book. And I mean a watershed in this sense. How people interpret what the temple and what the other figures, what the other things described in this chapter, what they describe and interpret them as being, really shows how they approach the book of Revelation. And I think that this temple is an important matter of interpretation. Many people look at this temple and see it as a symbol of the church. In other words, they believe that when God told John to go out and measure the temple, what he's really saying is measure the church. Measure the church at this tragic time during the end of time, right before Jesus returns. I want to see how big the church is. I own the church. Go measure the church. Now, it's certainly true that in the New Testament that the church is described as a temple. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul describes the church as a temple. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter describes the church as a temple. But I'll let you know something. You know what I believe that this temple of God, you know what I believe it's a symbol of, you know what I believe it represents. I believe that it all illustrates and pictures a temple. I know that's shocking. I think it's an actual temple. And look at that in verse 1 where it says, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar. You know what I believe that the altar is? An altar. And the people who worship there? You know who I believe they are? People who worship at this temple. Now, again, I, I believe we, let's understand that certainly the book of Revelation at time speaks to us in signs and word pictures. And it'll say that this is like something or this is like, but it, we're not told here that this is like a temple or it's like an altar or it's like the people. It says it is these things. You see, if this temple in Revelation 11 is a symbolic representation of the church, then why should it be measured? And and what's the significance of the courts and the altar? Why? What's the altar? Honestly, now, if this is the church, then what's the altar? And then if the church itself is the temple, who are the worshipers? Right? If the building itself represents the church, then who are the people worshiping at the... You see, it doesn't fit. Once you start embarking down this thing of wanting to make everything in the book of Revelation a symbol of something else, it's a a much, much too difficult road to travel on. It's much more likely that this is the temple that must be on the earth for the fulfillment of what Daniel, Jesus, and Paul said about the abomination of desolation. Well, I'm tempted here to just divert and go into an extended discussion of what I think is one of the most key things in biblical prophecy. 
A matter of fact, in, in, in uh, Matthew chapter 24, it's the thing that Jesus called the most direct attention to when he taught on prophecy. He said, look, all sorts of signs, all sorts of calamities, they'll come and go, but the thing I really want you to look for is what Daniel the prophet spoke of, the abomination of desolation. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation, then you know something has happened. You see, the the prophet Daniel told us that the Antichrist, this end times political and spiritual and economic world leader, that this man, the Antichrist, will break a covenant that he has made with the Jewish people and that he'll bring sacrifice and offerings to an end at the temple and he'll defile the temple by setting something abominable there. And Jesus said to look for an abomination standing in the holy place that would be the pivotal sign that the season of God's wrath was upon the earth. And Paul told us that the Antichrist would sit in the temple as God. Now sometimes this concept of the abomination of desolation is spiritualized. It's just referred to, well, it's idolatry. It's just, no, I believe it's a literal temple. It's a literal image. In point of fact today... There are Jews very interested in rebuilding the temple and resuming sacrifice and are even making preparations to do that exact thing now. You can go to Jerusalem. By the way, might I recommend it? If you have the the opportunity to go on a trip to Israel, it is worth some sacrifice on your part to make the trip. You know, it's as if you, you read about Hawaii your whole life, you know, and studied Hawaii and learned all about it. Don't you think you'd understand it a lot more when you went there? Of course you would. Well, it's the same thing with, with the land of the Bible. And you could go to Jerusalem today and visit a place in the old town, a, a place in the Jewish quarter known as the Temple Institute, stands in the Jewish quarter of the old city in Jerusalem. And there, a group of Jews who are absolutely dedicated to rebuilding the temple will attempt to educate you, and they're there to educate the public and raise awareness for a new temple. And they try to replicate everything they can for a new temple, down to the specific pots and pans used for sacrifice. They say, well, look, here's the pots and pans, here's the pitcher, here's the this. We're planning it all now. We're making the arrangements. We're training people in Levitical priesthood. We're researching what we need to research. We want to rebuild the temple. We want to reinstitute Levitical ceremonies and Levitical sacrifice. See, Israel's a nation again, and the efforts to rebuild the temple are for real. The the main Jewish group leading the charge to rebuild the temple is an organization called the Faithful of the Temple Mount. And they say that they'll continue their efforts to reestablish the Jewish temple on the mount. One leader in the group says, We shall continue our struggle until the Israeli flag is flying from the Dome of the Rock. As I said before, in Israel right now, there are students being trained for the priesthood, learning how to conduct animal sacrifice in the rebuilt temple. Now, I need to be very straightforward with you. I don't want to oversell this. I don't want to act as if you went to Jerusalem, there's some sort of groundswell of popular opinion. And, you know, the the opinion polls show that 75% of the Jewish people really want a rebuilt temple. My friends... Probably 95% of the Jewish people don't care and have no feelings whatsoever about there being a rebuilt temple. The group that wants it is small. They're a fringe group, but they're very dedicated to their task. And if there were to be a temple rebuilt, believe me, sacrifice would be pretty difficult in a day of aggressive animal rights activists. But there is a strong, dedicated group that absolutely lived to see a rebuilt temple, a temple which will fulfill prophecy. Now let me say something else here. As Christians, we get excited when we see Jewish people wanting to rebuild the temple. I mean, it's an exciting thing because you see prophecy being fulfilled right in front of your eyes. The Bible tells us that that the Antichrist will break the covenant by establishing an image of himself in a Jewish temple there, right there in Jerusalem, and it has to be there for him to do it, and so it's going to be rebuilt. We know that. So it's exciting to see that they want to do this. At the same time, we should understand that the basic 
impulse behind rebuilding the temple is not of God at all. Because the basic impulse behind rebuilding the temple is to have a place to sacrifice for sin. And friends, we believe that's been settled once and for all at the cross of Jesus Christ. Christians believe that all sacrifice for sin was finished at the cross, and any further sacrifice for sin is an offense to God because it denies the finished work of Jesus on the cross. So friends, we get excited about it, but from a distance. I would not contribute a nickel to the rebuilding of the temple. Though I know it'll be built, and though in a sense it's exciting for me to see it built, in another sense, it's grieving to me. You see, Orthodox Jews consider that the Messiah will rebuild the temple. However, the man that they initially embrace as their Messiah may in fact be the Antichrist. And this enables the rebuilding of the temple. Now going on to verse 2, it talks about the outer court of the temple. He says, But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now the outer court of the temple that John sees here and, and, and actually is able to measure, it need not be measured because it's been given to the Gentiles. Now this is very interesting. Because right now, the Temple Mount is in Gentile hands. I find it extremely fascinating that if you want to say, is there any nation on the world upon which God has put his focus for the prophetic outworking of his plan, you'd have to say, well, it's Israel. I mean, look, we're not trying to say that God loves the people of Israel more than he loves people from any other country. That's nonsense. That God's grace is more in Israel? Than, no, 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 no. One of the most exciting things that I experienced in Israel was what I didn't experience. I didn't feel one bit closer to God in Israel than I do anywhere else. Because God isn't any closer to me there than he is anywhere else. I mean, that, that was not the perk of Israel, was being closer to God. No, he's close to us everywhere. No, so we're not trying to say that, but, but as far as God's redemptive plan for the future is concerned, things have to happen somewhere, and he said they would happen in Israel. Well, if there's any center to the land of Israel where these things are going to happen, you'd have to say it's where? It's the city of Jerusalem. And if there's any center to the city of Jerusalem where these things are going to take place, you'd have to say that it's the several acres that are in the old town of Jerusalem known as the Temple Mount. Friends, when you're talking about the Temple Mount right now, it's governed, it's administered, it's uh, policed by Gentiles. When you want to go up and walk around on the Temple Mount, it is not Israeli guards that look you over and pass you through the checkpoint. No, you've already passed through the Israeli checkpoint once you get there. No, when you actually go up to the Temple Mount, it's Palestinian guards that are looking over you. It's Muslim and Arabic guards that are looking over you. If you want to get up there and get out your guitar and have a little worship service, it's the Palestinian authorities that will come along and move you along. The Jewish government has given the Gentiles, the Palestinians, the right to run the place, to, to rule it. This is much to the chagrin of Jewish authorities and rabbinic authorities. Right now there's a big controversy because they are, uh, without all the proper permits and permissions, Palestinians are going ahead and building another mosque up there on the Temple Mount. They're saying they already have two or three of them up there. Why do they need another one? Well, it's because they want to assert their authority and assert their place up there. Now, understanding that dynamic, how will you ever get a Jewish temple rebuilt up there? Especially because in the eyes of many archaeologists, the, the place where you would have to rebuild the temple, and that would be on the foundation of the old temple, the place where you would rebuild the temple is currently occupied by the third holiest shrine in all of Islam, the Dome of the Rock Shrine. Now listen, you're not going to blow up the Dome of the Rock Shrine and clear it away with bulldozers and build another temple. You have a generation-long jihad that will, uh, you'll have to work through before you're going to start construction on any temple, believe you me. So how do you work around it? Well, there's been some very interesting research done by Israeli archaeologists that suggest that the traditional site of 
what people thought was the foundation of the second temple is not actually the foundation of the second temple at all. But actually, an alternative site has been suggested that is to the north of the Dome of the Rock Shrine. And actually, the second temple could be rebuilt on its same foundation on this alternative site, and it wouldn't interfere with the Dome of the Rock Shrine at all. Now, when you think about that, you think, this could happen. This could happen for a very simple reason. Could you imagine a political leader coming together and having such political power, such political juice, that he could pull together the Palestinians and pull together the Jewish state and draw them together and say, as a testimony to our common cooperation, we'll have the mosque here and we'll have the Jewish temple here. They'll stand side by side on the Temple Mount as a testimony to our brotherhood. And that could happen now. Of course, our president tried for weeks and weeks to broker such a deal, right? Wasn't going anywhere. The time is not right. And you know what the big sticking point was? Who's going to run Jerusalem? That was the big sticking point in the negotiations. So friends, all these issues are at the right moment. It's going to take a political leader of the, of the weight of the Antichrist to pull this thing together as it will be described in the Bible. Now, what I want you to see here is that if... The second temple, if the temple was built upon the foundations of this alternative site to the north of the Dome of the Rock Shrine, that would put the Dome of the Rock Shrine in the outer courts of the temple area. And what does it say in verse 2? But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Very interesting again. Here we have this idea of 42 months, which is three and a half years. This time period of three and a half years is going to come to us repeatedly in the book of Revelation. Because the Bible in the book of Daniel gives a very specific prophetic outline. It's in the same passage that the abomination of desolation was described. And in this prophetic outline, it describes for us in, in great detail, or at least in vivid detail, who knows how much God is going to fill in that we don't know of, but it describes in very vivid detail the last seven years before Jesus returns. The first three and a half years will be a time where the Antichrist rules and his reign is prosperous and he's regarded as a messianic figure by the Jewish people. And it's a marvelous reign of peace and prosperity and success. Yes, probably Christians, those who come to Christ after the rapture, because the church is already out of the scene. But those who come to faith in Christ after the rapture, yes, they'll be persecuted. Yes, they'll probably be martyred. But it'll seem like a great time on the earth. Until in this rebuilt temple, the Antichrist, this political and social and economic superman of the last days, until he, in that temple, decides to set up of himself an image and demand that the whole world worship it. When that happens, the Jewish people know that they have been betrayed. And the Antichrist turns his fury on them. And then God turns his fury upon the world. And all these great plagues, all these great disasters, all these uh, aspects of ecological devastation that we've looked at in the past few weeks, those happen in the last three and a half years of this period known as Daniel's 70th week. So when you see this idea of 42 months or 1260 days or three and a half years, or sometimes the terminology is a time, times, and half a time, when you see that terminology, you know Three and a half years, it's either going to go in the first part or in the second part of this final seven-year period. Now, one of the great features of this final seven-year period is two remarkable characters here at verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days. See, you have that three and a half-year period again. Clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and destroy and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. This passage introduces for us two of the more interesting characters of the book of Revelation, the two witnesses. 
We can say from them, just from these few verses, that first of all, the character of their ministry is prophetic. It's said that they will prophesy. They they preach and they model repentance. They're clothed in sackcloth. And we're also told that they will have an effective ministry because as God says, I will give them power. Matter of fact, they will have such power that they will witness for three and a half years in the face of great antagonism against the world, and yet they will not be able to be conquered until God says it's so. Now, which three and a half years do the two witnesses minister in? It's a tough call. I believe it's probably in the first three and a half years. And one of the things at the middle point is is a dramatic marking where their ministry is over and they're taken up into heaven. If you want to see the dramatic uh, nature of their ministry, we have this picture of the two olive trees and the two lampstands, which again is another unique picture from the Old Testament, from the book of Zechariah, that speaks of olive trees feeding into oil lamps. You know, the thing about oil lamps is you have to keep feeding them with oil, don't you? You stop feeding them with oil, they'll go out. But what uh, Zechariah had in mind in his vision was branches or, or tubing, so to speak, that goes right from olive trees into oil lamps so the trees continually supply the lamps with oil. The idea is of a continual, never-ending, abundant supply, and that's how these witnesses have the power of the Holy Spirit in their life. And if you want to see authority, you saw it there. It says, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemy. Well, that puts an end to the opposition, doesn't it? And they have the power to shut heaven. They have power of waters, turn them blood. The two witnesses have the power to bring forth drought and plague, similar to the power that Elijah and Moses had. By the way, let me say something else. In the ancient Greek grammar, all the nouns used to speak of the two witnesses in this passage are in the masculine gender. The ancient Greek language is like many languages today on the earth. Uh, words have a masculine or a feminine gender. All the nouns and the pronouns used to speak of the two witnesses are in the masculine gender. The two witnesses are definitely two men. Check it out here, verse 7. Let's see what happens to them. Now, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them. Friends, that's the Antichrist, as we'll see in coming chapters. He'll overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. Now, where's that? That's Jerusalem. Verse 9. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Friends, do you have the picture here? Do you kind of get a little picture of the dynamic going on? The church is gone. It's been raptured. And then this incredible political and social and economic superman steps to the scene. And he has everything running great. The only people that he feels you've got to clamp down on, and he has tremendous tolerance, tremendous love, but the people you've got to clamp down in his eye are all those people who are turning to Jesus Christ. They were glad that so many of them disappeared in that mysterious happening. But now there's more and more of them coming along, and you've got to clamp down against those people. And what's worse is you've got these two guys running around all over the earth trying to raise more and more of these followers of Jesus Christ. And so they try to stop them. They try to stop them over and over again. At this time, this world political and economic and social leader, he hasn't shown his true fangs yet. He's shown little glimpses of them, but not the true terrors yet. And so he does his best to stop these two men and their remarkable ministry, but it's not happening. It's not working. Until finally one day he gets them. And they're left dead in the streets of Jerusalem, live on CNN, all over the world. You saw it right there. Look at it there. Verse 9, Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days. Friends, how could that be fulfilled before a present time? And now it be fulfilled, and we think nothing of it. It's a worldwide satellite hookup, and not only that, you got the internet webcam right there on the streets of Jerusalem. By the way, you can go on the internet webcam right now, 24 hours a day, the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. It could be that very same webcam that catches this and broadcasts this image all over the world, not to mention satellite television, everything else on it. 
And there they are. They're, they're, they're there and they're, they're doing their work. But now they're dead. Lying in the streets of Jerusalem. And everybody throws a party. Our leader told us that these were the bad men who were messing up our culture, messing up this brave new world order that we're trying to make, and now we're on the verge of, of making a paradise on earth under the banner of our great leader, and now these two troublemakers are out of the way. Let's have a party. Let's exchange gifts with one another. It's like Christmas all over. The, these prophets tormented us. Now they're gone. Or are they? Verse 11. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. I want to direct this scene in the movie that they make of this. I'll have the guy from CNN, CNN talking, and you know, there you can see the bodies in the background, and he's talking, there's a crowd all around, you know, here he is, you know. Charlie Jacob, live from Jerusalem. You know, here we are. Well, it's day three, or actually it would be day four, three and a half. Day four of, you know, dead prophet watch here on the streets of Jerusalem. <laughs> and here they are. You know, what's the update? And they're getting opinion from And, you know, the, the camera and the background. And, she, and then all of a sudden, the background and the, picks up the guys and they stand up, shake themselves off. The camera is starting to tremble because the cameraman, he's shaking. He can see it, but the guy that's behind him, he doesn't know what's going on. And great fear fell on those who saw them. That's one of the great understatements of the Bible. Can you imagine? These guys didn't bump their head and get back up. It's not like they took a tough hit on a football field. No. These guys have been dead three and a half days. And now they get up. And this is the best. Broadcast live on CNN all over the world. Verse 12. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. Isn't that amazing? Now, how many people do you think on the earth at that moment will say, you know what? Those guys must have been for real. I will believe. Let's not forget that one of the greatest harvests of humanity will happen during this time of the Great Tribulation. And these people who come to Christ during this period will have to undergo horrific torture and many, if not most, if not all of them, martyrdom for their faith. But friend, there will be a great harvest in this great tribulation. Now when I say that, I, I almost hedge from saying that. I say almost because I don't hedge from saying because it's biblical truth and so I'm not afraid to share it. But, but I do, as a teacher, I, I wonder, is somebody going to take that wrong? Is somebody going to say, well, look, Millions are going to come to Christ during the Great Tribulation. I'll just make sure I'm one of them. So I'll live the way I want to live now. And when the Christians are raptured, and when this political Superman comes to power, I'll wake up then. Well, for many people, it'll be too late, first of all. Because for many of these people, they will have already taken the mark of the beast that we're going to talk about in coming chapters of the book of Revelation. And you know what? Once you take that mark, I'm sorry, it's too late, period. But what's even more Dangerous than that is the deception that people live under right now. The deception that says, I won't live for Jesus now, but I'll die for him then. Honestly, friends, if you won't live for him now, what makes you think that you'll die for him on that day? Because this is the serious business. On that day, you're going to have to be willing to die for him to trust in him. But I'm going to Love watching this scene from the studio monitors that they have in heaven. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them all over the world, live on CNN. And in the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 men were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe was passed. Behold, the third woe was coming quickly. You see, in the midst of this, I believe that one of the hallmarks, and this is why I believe this happens at the middle point of the Great Tribulation, either right before or right after the abomination of desolation. I believe that at this point, this great earthquake, this is the beginning of the great terrors that will happen during this time of the Great Tribulation, this last three and a half year period. Verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, 
saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you've taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. Get the picture here? It's on the edge, isn't it? There's praise in advance for the resolution of all things. Heaven is shaking. Earth is shaking. It's on the edge for the resolution of all things or at least for several more chapters. Because we've seen this pattern before, haven't we, in the book of Revelation? You come up to the edge, and then you back away again. Why? Well, I could say for a few reasons. First of all, because it's brilliant writing. It really builds suspense. And God, God is a good writer, might I say. He really knows how to do it. But far more than just literary concerns, it shows us the mercy of God, doesn't it? How much he loves. How much he, he'll come to the edge and then back off a little bit to give time for repentance, time for people to turn their hearts to him. Now before we conclude in the last few minutes that we have tonight, maybe we should discuss something just on a side issue, a peripheral issue. It seems to consume or concern many people. And it's a simple question. Who are these two witnesses? Now, you should know that many interpreters see them as symbolic of the entire church in the tribulation period, or symbols of the law and the prophets. It doesn't make any sense. You see, when you start, sim- well, the two witnesses really are just a symbol of the entire church. Okay, well, then what is Jerusalem and the streets of Jerusalem? What does that symbolize? What, you know, and you go on and on. What, you, the symbols don't work. What are they? They're two people. They're two real individuals. They're not symbolic representations. Unfortunately, it's not a short list of modern nuts who think that they are one of the two witnesses. I've met four or five of them in my life. I think if you got all of them together, there'd be 144,000 people who figured that they were one of the two witnesses. But let's remember that, first of all, it must not be terribly important who they were, or we would have been told, right? I mean, if it was terribly important for us to know, God would have told us. But generally, if the two witnesses are identified with any two individuals from the past, the leading candidates are Moses, Elijah, and Enoch. Now, it may be that these two witnesses are not literally Moses and Elijah or Enoch coming from heaven to earth. They may be these men in the sense that John the Baptist was Elijah. Jesus said to the people of his day that it was prophesied that Elijah must come first before the Messiah. And he said, and John the Baptist is Elijah if you can receive it. In other words, he's saying he's not literally Elijah, but he ministers in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He's Elijah Jr., if you will. He's a man who's filled with the same spirit, filled with the same attitude, filled with the same ministry focus as Elijah himself. He is, so to speak, the second coming of Elijah. Now, if you want to identify with any two people, you could say that these guys minister in the same spirit, the same manner as Moses and Elijah did in the Old Testament. There's a lot of things that qualify them. If you look at the character and the personality ministry, it just seems to figure. But you should know that some believe that the two witnesses must be Elijah and Enoch, because neither one of them in the Old Testament died a natural death on this earth. Of Enoch, it says that he simply walked with God and was not because the Lord took him up to him. He was just raptured. God said, come on up here. He didn't even die. And then, of course, Elijah ascended to heaven in a chariot of fire. He did not die either. 
And many people say, well, look, these are two prominent men in the Old Testament who did not die natural deaths. They simply went up into heaven. And Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed for men to die once. And look, these guys didn't die once. So they've got to come back and have their dying once, and then they can do that. <laughs> Might I say that that's a misunderstanding of Hebrews 9.27. Yes, Hebrews 9.27 says it's appointed for men to die once. And what that simply means is the idea of reincarnation is a a sham. But friends, it's a principle. It's not an absolute, immutable law. There are exceptions which prove that rule. How about Lazarus, right? This friend of Jesus, he died. Jesus rose from the dead. He died again. Well, we don't change Hebrews 9.27 to say it's appointed for men to die once, except in a few situations they die twice. (laughs) We understand that Hebrews 9.27 is a principle true, speaking of 99.9999% of the human race. There are exceptions which prove the rule. How about every believer who's raptured? So, you, you see, you don't have to say that it's Elijah and Enoch For the sake of Hebrews 9.27, you could argue that's Elijah and Enoch for other reasons, but not for the purpose of fulfilling Hebrews 9.27. Might I say, if anybody ever comes up to you and says, God has spoken to me, I'm one of the two witnesses. Run, don't walk away. You know, I could tell you the story of the guy who had a dynamic ministry. Not just in one church, but in many churches. A a community-wide youth leader and respected and honored. I mean, amazing ministry. Magnetic personality. And and God used him in, in marvelous, marvelous ways. Until he started getting tripped out on things. And what do you know? Pretty soon he believed that he was one of the two witnesses. And who was the other two of the two witnesses? Well, it just happened to be a, a woman he was interested in, not his wife. That's why I went through pains to explain that the two witnesses are men, according to the speaking of the Greek grammar. And so uh, what do you know? That over time, he ends up divorcing his wife and forsaking and leaving his precious children And hooking up together with this other gal who was one of the two witnesses, he and this other gal, they were the two witnesses of Revelation. And I don't know, and I don't really care all that much what's happened to this man. I just pray that he's repented. But unfortunately, it's unlikely in such cases. Friends, uh, if somebody says they're one of the two witnesses, or if somebody says that you're one of the two witnesses, don't you believe it. No, these things, they're set by the heart of God. And I wouldn't doubt if God would not grant a special exception and send back to this earth Moses and Elijah from heaven to carry out this ministry, just so that no person walking this earth at the present time could accurately say that they are one of these two witnesses, and especially in light of the incredible supernatural power that these men wield. Friends, when we read these things, it tells us the end times and what the Bible says about we're not talking about fairy tales, we're not talking about fables, we're talking about real events that have come to this world, which means we've got to get real serious about our walk with Jesus Christ. And let's pray and ask the Lord to do that in our lives. Father, we thank you for the great work of Jesus, for the strong hand of our Savior. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us a proper prophetic focus, guarding our hearts, Lord, from obsession with foolish speculative things. But, Lord, a proper focus on the return of Jesus and our being ready for our coming Savior. Lord, as we see the times so ripely set, the world ready for a political and economic and social superman, ready to make a peace treaty with the Jewish nation, ready, Lord, to take control of things in a unified earth, drawn closer together by modern technology than ever before, people 
yearning to rebuild a temple. Lord, we look at all those things and we have mixed feelings. We're happy, Lord, because it confirms your word and it shows us that the time is close. But Lord, we grieve for what this world and people we know will go through. We ask that you would use us as vessels of your salvation for as long as you have us on this earth. Make us earnest in this, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.